welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And our sponsor this week is the JAEC Foundation, which is hosting an international conference on open dialogue this August. And you can visit the website jaecfoundation.org for more information. And now on to our interview. Our guest today is sociologist and author Dr. Andrew Skull. Andrew is a professor of sociology and science studies at the University of California, San Diego, and recipient of the Roy Porter Medal for Lifetime Contributions to the History of Medicine and the Eric T. Carlson Award for Lifetime Contributions to the History of Psychiatry. The author of more than a dozen books, his work has been translated into more than 15 languages, and he has received fellowships from, among others, the Guggenheim Foundation, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the Shelby Cullum Davis Center for Historical Studies. In this interview, we discuss his latest book, Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness, which was published by Harvard Press in May 2022. Dirk Wittenborn, the screenwriter and novelist, described the book as a riveting chronicle of faulty science, false promises, arrogance, greed, and shocking disregard for the well-being of patients suffering from mental disorders. An eloquent, meticulously documented, clear-eyed call for change. Dr. Skull, Andrew, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join me today for the Madden America podcast. Thank you very much, James. It's a pleasure to be here. To kind of get us started, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about you, um, actually. So you're a, a distinguished professor of sociology and science studies at the University of California, San Diego. And your many books seem to share a similar theme in kind of exploring the history of psychiatry and, and the kind of cultural history of insanity. So how was it that you became interested in researching madness? Well, uh, James, that's a very long time ago now. Um, I first began working in the field in the early 1970s. Uh, and at that point, I have to say, I did not intend to make this my career. Uh, I thought I'd write a single book on um, the emergence of the asylum and the simultaneous construction of psychiatry as a profession uh, in Victorian England. Uh, and uh, I suspected I would then move on in, in rather different directions. I was led to that area as some, something to research, um, probably mostly by encountering a couple of books that were receiving quite a lot of attention at the time that um, I first encountered the field. One, one was David Rothman's book called The Discovery of the Asylum, which was about the creation of the asylum system in the United States and offered a very... Uh, how to put it, um, ethnocentric view. It, it was very much as though it was an American discovery, which I already was inclined to doubt. Uh, and the other thing, the other book was uh, one that, of course, is very famous and uh, is echoed in a bit by the title of one of my books, uh, Madness in Civilization. But that was the book by Michel Foucault, that was translated in abbreviated form as Madness in Civilization. Um, when I first encountered that book, uh, Foucault had not become a, the, the huge 
uh, international cult figure that he became within a very few years. He was obviously very important in French intellectual circles, but it's fairly unusual for uh, a French intellectual to make the kind of impact that Foucault did across the whole array of disciplines. Reading those two books convinced me that this was the subject of considerable intellectual importance. And there was nothing comparable written at that point on the English scene. So that was really the launch of my interest. And uh, I was then emigrated to America, actually on what I thought was a short-term basis to do my doctoral work. But it turned out uh, it in my career started in the United States and by and large, with the exception of some times in England, has, has continued there. Um, when I was trying to uh, get a job, uh, one of the rituals in American academic life is you go around and you present a potted history of your research. And in this case, I was trying to get a job in a sociology department talking about Victorian lunacy reform, which was a rather odd thing to try to do. But as I went around and gave this talk, my sociological colleagues knew virtually nothing about the substance of what I was talking about. And they would say things like, well, um, aren't you glad they're shutting these places down now? Or um, what's happening in the current environment? Not, you know, let, forget about stuff that's 100 years old. Tell, tell us about now. And I'd been so buried in asylum archives for an extended period uh, and in the medical literature about insanity that I really didn't know. And I thought, that's a really interesting question. Is it really the case? Because there had been a huge amount of social and intellectual capital invested in creating these institutions, justifying them, uh, defending them, and persuading people uh, that they were the appropriate response to serious mental illness. Uh, and I thought, well, um, I should investigate this. And I did. And so I went backwards from the 19th century into the 18th century uh, and, and did a substantial amount of work on, on how families and patients came to the attention of mad doctors, the predecessors of modern psychiatry. Um, I moved forward into the early 20th century, which was a very unexplored territory at that point. People, a number of other people had jumped in and looked at Victorian asylums, but hardly anybody had, had really looked at the early, at the, at the 20th century. And uh, as I began those researches, I encountered things like lobotomy, uh, and I encountered um, focal sepsis and the idea that you could cure mental illness by eviscerating people. And so I thought, I really ought to write a book called Desperate Remedies. Uh, I already had that title in mind. And at that point, my focus really was at the first three or four decades of the 20th century when these basically horrors were visited on captive mental patients. But um, I wrote many other things along the way, kept coming back to that topic and doing research, uh, you know, in a, whenever I had the chance. And that meant 
since psychiatry had taken a turn towards biological reductionism once again in the 1980s and going forward, I needed to talk about that. Why had that happened? Uh, and what had been the consequences? Uh, part of that story, obviously, was the collapse of psychoanalysis, which had dominated American psychiatry in the period immediately after World War II. And part of it, obviously, was the drugs revolution, uh, the psychopharmacological discoveries that had underpinned this move uh, towards uh, a treating mental illness uh, with things that looked like the sorts of things that um, mainstream medicine was using to treat other kinds of diseases. And the other side of that was um, the attempt to provide a theoretical underpinning for this biological revolution. That is um, the move back once again uh, to looking at the genetics of mental illness and the rise of neuroscience, which really emerged in the late 60s and the 70s and had become in academic psychiatry the kind of dominant force as opposed to what the people actually in the trenches dealing with mental illness were, were up to. Um, so that entailed a lot of reading, um, a lot of thinking about those issues. Um, and ultimately, as, as I read the, uh, the literature, um, largely the failure to be able to, to uh, comprehend the etiology of any of the things psychiatrists have labeled schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depression. Um, so um, the, the actual, there are no biological markers for those things. There, there has been, when you look at the genetics, it's actually tended to undermine the idea that these are separable conditions. Uh, and the neuroscience, uh, well, obviously there'd been advances in the understanding of the enormously complicated thing that is our brain uh, had led clinically nowhere, as I could, as far as I could see. Many promises, but not much result. Yeah. Uh, psychiatry has offered promissory notes over and over again in its history, and it, it's dishonored every one of them, I think, uh, more or less. Not to say there hasn't been some movement, some progress, uh, I don't entirely dismiss drugs, uh, though I'm highly critical of the ways in which there's a Panglossian portrait of how, how much good they do. It's a very much more mixed picture. And indeed, for many mentally ill people, these drugs simply don't work and they, they often have terrible side effects. Uh, so, you know, one needs a more balanced look at, at, at that, it seems to me. Um, and uh, always through this, partly because uh, I knew some people who'd become very seriously disturbed and in one case had committed suicide, uh, I wasn't one to uh, deny the reality of mental illness, the suffering that it causes. And as one of my friends and psychiatric historian colleagues, uh, Michael McDonald, put it, he said, you know, madness is the most solitary of afflictions for the person suffering from it and the most social of maladies for everyone around them. Um, when, when people become seriously depressed or um, hallucinate and uh, embrace delusions about the world, um, the problems that 
creates are not just problems for the individual sufferer, but most importantly for their family if they have one and for the larger community. It's impossible to escape that. Uh, so I, you know, one of the things about mental illness that uh, I think is almost a historical universal. I hesitate to say that, but I think having studied for everything from ancient Greece and Palestine and ancient China to now, I can say it it is enveloped by stigma and rejection, and that compounds whatever problems um, the the mental disturbance brings in its wake, uh, and is a real uh, problem that it seems impossible to escape. And, and more than that, in an odd kind of way, the stigma that accrues to mental illness itself also sticks to the people charged with treating it or the people who have not, not accidentally come to, come to be treating it. Um, so of all the branches of medicine, psychiatry is among the most despised the branch about which we're highly skeptical. There's no anti-cardiology, but there is an anti-psychiatry. Um, and the problem, of course, is that um, psychiatric history throws up all too many uh, pieces of evidence that some of that opprobrium is well-earned. Uh, some of the things that psychiatrists have done not just for their patients, but to their patients, neglecting them as having any voice in the whole process, uh, really are very, very disturbing. And I have to say, when I was researching Desperate Remedies, um, it, there's this odd kind of thing as a historian. You discover remarkable things, that stories that you can tell based on what you discover in the archives. For example, um, finding that Walter Freeman, America's leading lobotomist, talked his patients through the operations and recorded them, uh, provides, and I, I, I reproduce one of these transcripts in, in, in the book. Uh, on the one hand, you're saying, wow, this is fabulous material. On the other side of the coin, you're going, my God, what a monster this man was. Um, the way it worked in the early stages of lobotomy before he resorted to the ice pick lobotomies after the war, they would do it under local anesthetic. So you, you'd be fully conscious. They'd drill holes through your skull. You, it was like a, a dentist drilling your tooth only 10 times as bad. And then they'd slice your brain with a butter knife. When to stop in this so-called precision lobotomy? Well, when the patient became confused. So you would talk them through it. And when they started to lose track, that was the signal to stop operating. So in the case of one patient, Freeman says, uh, apropos of a whole string of questions, what's passing through your mind, Mr. Morgan? And there's a pause. And Mr. Morgan answers, a knife. When I was researching uh, Henry Cotton, who was the superintendent of New Jersey State Asylum in Trenton, and who conceived the idea, and he wasn't alone in this, but he was, he was the major proselytizer for it, that mental illness was the result of your brain being poisoned by lurking infections in various corners of the body. And in a pre-antibiotic era, what were you going to do? Well, you had to practice surgical bacteriology. In other words, you had to rip the offending infections out 
first teeth and tonsils. And when that didn't work, you were swallowing the germs. They were going down into the stomach and the spleen and the colon, and in the case of women, to the uterus for some odd reason. And so you went in and you, you discarded these organs one after another, sometimes operating two and three times, confessing in print that you were killing 30% of the people you did the serious surgery on to no rebuke, no sense this was improper. In fact, you were killing 45% of the people you operated on in this way. And this went on for nearly two decades. In fact, the pulling of teeth and the removal of tonsils at Trenton continued all the way to 1960. I actually interviewed the dentist who had literally pulled hundreds of thousands of teeth in the pursuit of a cure for mental illness and still believed this was correct. Uh, and of course, it was utterly bizarre. And yet the profession, and in particular, its leader, Adolf Meyer at Johns Hopkins, not only didn't question what was going on, although some people doubted Cotton's results, uh, nobody said, hey, killing 30% of your patients is an outrage, stop. Um, but Meyer actually knew from the report of one of his assistants, Phyllis Greenacre, uh, that so far from curing patients, the more of this treatment people got, the worse the outcome. And he suppressed the report. And then when Cotton died unexpectedly from a heart attack, he wrote an obituary saying what a, what a shame it was for psychiatry that such a promising line of inquiry and such a great man had been taken prematurely from our midst. So, you know, it, you encounter these things and uh, they're great material for a book, but they're also deeply, deeply disturbing. Um, when I was doing the cotton work in the 1980s and early 1990s, I, I had very little money and I was staying in something that looked a bit like Bates Motel in Psycho. And so I'd read these patient reports and I'd turn the page and it would say, died, died. And I, I'd go back at night and reflect on what I'd just seen. And it was... Deeply, deeply upsetting is, the mild, is a mild way of saying uh, what I found about it. And I just learned because I periodically get contact, uh, contacted by relatives of people who were in Trenton. And somebody got in touch with me and said, my grandmother was there in, in 1929. Where can I get the records? And I said, well, when I was there, they were in the hospital basement. I lived there with the cockroaches and the vermin while I was researching this with no air conditioning in the New Jersey summer. It was no great fun. I said, you know, they're there or they may have been transferred to the New Jersey State Archives. Well, indeed, it turns out some of the hospital records have been. The rest have mysteriously disappeared. No one can now replicate what I did because it's pretty clear that the hospital authorities sanitized the whole thing by chucking them out. There were detailed records on every single patient. They no longer exist. What an odd coincidence. If one incli were inclined to conspiracy, uh, one might think that the profession would determine that it was time to bury those records for once and for all. I kind of share the sense of horror in, in, in reading um, Desperate Remedies and reading the, the kind of past history of psychiatry. It's impossible not to be affected by it. 
But I, I guess what comes across for me strongly in the book is, uh, you know, the question that, that entered my mind as I got to the end is, why is it that psychiatry as a discipline seems so vulnerable to fads? So, you know, new bodily treatments that are hailed as great advances, yet they never seem to stand the test of time. And, and I think that was apparent in your writing about the early stages of psychiatry, but still seems to be going on today. So, you know, I, I wondered what your research had kind of told you about that. Well, Desperate Remedies as a title has a kind of ambiguous set of meanings that is pretty obvious when we're talking about some of the real extreme things like um, injecting horse serum into people's spines to give them meningitis as a way of curing their mental illness, which is another example, or putting them in prolonged comas with barbiturates and then with insulin. Um, what's going on here? Um, so... I think if we look at the long history, um, when the asylum's born, it's an attempt to rescue the mentally ill from the jails and the prisons and the garrets and the pigsties where they're confined. Uh, and it's launched in a period of extreme optimism when the world is changing dramatically around people, transportation, canals, railroads, um, markets opening up, uh, work changing dramatically and people's day-to-day uh, -day routines being transformed. So human nature seems to be malleable, environment seems to matter, environment seems to be something we can control. And the idea, of course, of the first institutions, which are labeled retreats after the York Retreat in England, or uh, asylums, in, with a very positive sense of that, Term. Yeah, a place of refuge, it means, doesn't it? Right, it's a refuge. So it later acquires terrible meanings, but at the outset, uh, this extraordinary optimism. In America, there's a bidding up of cure rates, so psychiatry, early psychiatry, they don't yet call themselves psychiatrists, they call themselves medical superintendents, which gives away what their authority derives from. Um, we're going to cure 60, 70, 80 percent or perhaps even more of patients as long as they come quickly. But um, the actual cure rates were more like 30 or 40 percent. And when I say cure, these were people who, with some respite and care, were able to be restored to the community with some semblance of ability to cope with daily life. Uh, but that left behind uh, a very large fraction of each year's intake. And over time, simple mathematics means a couple of things. First of all, the institutions were compelled to grow and grow massively uh, so that institutions of 30 or 40 patients became 1,000, 5,000, even 10,000 in the early 20th century, even more than that. Um, and of course, individual care becomes virtually impossible once you've got um, warehouses of unwanted people of that size. Um, so that was uh, one outcome. Uh, and uh, the other is that the image of the asylum became one as a place where you went and you didn't come out. That was slightly incorrect um, of each year's intake. A certain fraction did indeed emerge within the first 12 months. But if that didn't happen, you went to what Goffman called with a, a lovely euphemism, continuous treatment wards or no treatment wards. So that meant psychiatry had this huge problem how to explain away what appeared to be a tremendous failure, uh, going backwards, not progressing. Um, 
And the initial response was to blame the victim. It was the mental patient's fault because they were biologically defective. And in an era where evolutionary ideas are becoming increasingly common in the last third of the 19th century, these were a group of people in whom evolution had run in reverse. They were degenerates, they were moral lepers, they were people who'd lost their humanity. Uh, and the best thing to do was to lock them away because otherwise they'd breed uncontrollably and we'd had even more mad people in the next generation. And out of that uh, came worries about, that explained away why the, it was a good thing that the profession was failing to cure them. You didn't want them out in the, in the, in the world reproducing their defective kind. So what else might one do? The answer in early 20th century America is snuff out their ability to reproduce, and then you might be able to, re to, to release them. And so compulsory sterilization laws appeared on the scene, uh, and eventually a case reached the Supreme Court of America in uh, uh, 1927, Buck versus Bell, a young woman who'd been sterilized against her will. And the Supreme Court, in an eight-to-one ruling written, written by Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of America's great jurists, said, yes, the state had a compelling interest here. Three generations of idiots were enough. They could, in fact, do this. California became then the leader in uh, actually conducting these things and continued to do it until 1960 in some cases, so very late on. Um, the Nazis then adopted California's law. The superintendent of Stockton State Hospital, a, a woman, I might add, boasted that it was her state's laws that had guided the Nazis to their sterilization law. And of course, whereas in liberal democracies, there are some checks and balances and there were opponents of sterilization. So while it happened, uh, there were some limits on it. In Nazi Germany, there were none. And then by the end of the 30s, Hitler and his cronies decided these were, as he put it, useless eaters. They were just consuming resources. They weren't going to get better. So kill them. Kill them all. And with the active participation of most leading German psychiatrists, uh, they started shooting them. And then the gas chamber technology, the gas chambers disguised as showers, came in. Uh, they killed perhaps a quarter million patients. And then they packed up the apparatus and moved it to the death camps along with the personnel because now they worked out how to do it. So the mentally ill were the first victims of the final solution. So I'm coming to the answer to your question now. Um, to be boarding house keepers, to just lodge the mentally ill, or to sterilize them, uh, sat uncomfortably with people who wanted to be thought of as engaged in curing people in, their, in a therapeutic exercise. And so the alternative route forward, having decided that mental illness was rooted in the body, was to say, well, perhaps biology could lead us towards cure. And so what then happens is ambitious men, and it's mostly men in, the, in this era, uh, embark on a series of experiments to try to solve this problem. And desperation exists on all sides here. Families are desperate for something to be done. 
Patients, in some cases, if they retain some agency and voice, are also pretty desperate. When mental patients were shut up in the asylum, they were shut up in a double sense. They were obviously incarcerated, but their voices were shut up. They were, whatever they said didn't matter because it was a product of their madness and so could be disregarded. So this was a kind of perfect storm. It allowed for uh, any number of interventions to be constructed and visited upon uh, helpless people. Uh, often, even when families were asked to give permission, which was not the norm, they readily gave it. After all, the authority figures were telling them this was the best chance of restoring their loved one to sanity. And if they, even if they went elsewhere, for example, John Fulton at Yale was America's leading um, brain physiologist. And he, if he'd been consulted, he'd have told his rich consultees, yes, you should get a lobotomy. Harvard had a very active lobotomy program. Columbia had an active program. Yale had an active program. University of Pennsylvania, Duke, all of these major medical centers into the 1950s, two decades after the operation's arrival, were still telling people that this was the solution. And indeed, we're saying we shouldn't wait. We should operate. If somebody isn't better within six months or a year, that's when we should do a lobotomy. Don't wait till they're deteriorated because then it's almost too late. And, and it, got, it got worse, didn't it? You, I was shocked to read in the book that not only did they lobotomize people, but then if they didn't see the results from the lobotomy they expected, they then gave multiple rounds of ECT to that person to try and elicit a response from the failed lobotomy in the first place. Absolutely. Or um, Freeman would often operate twice, even three times. And he did so within the space of about five or six days after the operation, because as he explained, these noisy mental patients on general wards were really disruptive. And besides, they couldn't afford to keep paying for inpatient care for too long. So if you didn't get a result, you went back in and did it ah, again. Also, one of the things I, I discovered as I went along was that women were preferentially singled out for many of these desperate remedies. Uh, that was true of lobotomies. Statistics are anywhere between 60 and 80% of the cases were female. Uh, something obviously different about female brains, I get. Well, no, I think I know a more complicated answer than that, but that was the way things were reasoned about then. Uh, and the other thing is Freeman was willing to operate on children as young as four years of age. Uh, and indeed said that children's brains could sustain more damage and yet the child could proceed, could be become like a pet in the household. Uh, and actually, when I did uh, a PBS documentary, oh, probably about 15 years ago, called The Lobotomist, you can still see it online, about Freeman, which I thought was a bit of a whitewash of Freeman. Um, I, I really uh, think of him as, as a monster. Um, one of the other participants in the program was one of Freeman's last lobotomy cases. He almost was kicked out of George Washington in 54, and he moved west to the, the Bay Area and resumed lobotomizing in private hospitals. And this was a, a young man who at the age of 11 
had been lobotomized, a man named Howard Dully. And uh, his parents had divorced. His father had remarried. His stepmother found this 11-year-old a pain in the ass. No great surprise there, obviously resentful of the new situation. And her solution was to take him to Freeman and have him lobotomized. Um, so, you know, that's probably the most dramatic. The lobotomy, because it involves a direct assault on the brain, is perhaps the most fearsome and, and striking of these interventions. But very many of them were deeply harmful and persisted for decades. The psychological side, the, the, the psychological treatment of mental illness, which these days tends to be some variation of cognitive behavioral therapy, is largely outside the ranks of medicine anymore. Um, the emergence after the war of clinical psychology uh, plays a major role in that, and, and us does managed care. Uh, in America, we pay for medical and psychiatric care, and uh, people ex are, are used to that. But the insurance companies found CBT to be a much cheaper option, one with a clear end, unlike psychoanalysis, uh, directed at suppressing symptoms uh, rather than treating the symptoms as the psychoanalyst claimed as emblematic of an underlying, much more complex uh, psychological reality. Uh, and so um, it's clinical psychologists by and large who now offer psychotherapy as a treatment. Uh, and the fact that's a heavily feminized profession, and as a sociologist, I know when you look at, the, at jobs, those that are female dominated tend to be paid less. And certainly um, clinical psychologists don't demand the same fees as psychiatrists. And if they did, the insurance companies wouldn't, wouldn't pay them. Uh, the only exception to that is a small group of psychiatrists still clinging in most cases to psychoanalysis who take patients who have to pay directly, not, not covered by insurance. And that, of course, means it's a very niche market only for the very wealthy, because who else can pay that cost? As I read through the book, again, I couldn't help but be struck by, um, in the early stages of the book, uh, the asylum periods and, and the kind of somatic treatments, cure is mentioned an awful lot. We can cure mental illness. You know, we, we've got these new treatments. But as you then get into the latter part of the book, the, the modern history of psychiatry, cure isn't, it, it disappears from the picture and it becomes much more about symptom management. And I wondered if you, you know, what you thought led to that kind of transition of we're not talking about curing mental illness anymore. We're talking about managing these conditions. I think, of course, much of that reflects the limitations of what psychiatrists can do for their patients. Uh, the new wave of drugs that emerges serendipitously by accident in the early 1950s, whether we're talking about uh, uh antipsychotics like Thorazine, or we're talking about the first generation of antidepressants, or we're talking about the so-called minor tranquilizers, Milltown, uh, Valium, Librium, those sorts of things. Um, it's early on this talk about cure, but it becomes increasingly apparent that's not what's happening. Um, these aren't psychiatric penicillin, very far from it. 
They are at best something that manages some of the symptoms, and I emphasize some of the symptoms of uh, that the people are complaining of, that suffering from. With respect to schizophrenia, for example, I'd put that label in quotations because uh, as Robin Murray of the Institute of Psychiatry has recently put it, he thinks within 10 years that diagnosis is going to vanish because the evidence for it is a separate condition is evaporating. But in any event, if we take that, classically, psychiatrists talk about positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia. This reminds me of when oncologists uh, talk about benign brain tumors. I can't imagine a brain tumor being benign, but I know what they're getting at. It's not, it, it, it's not cancer. Uh, the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, the delusions and the hallucinations that plague people, do seem for some fraction, by no means all, but some fraction of the patients, to be somewhat alleviated or people stop caring about them even if they're experiencing them under the effect of these drugs. But in many ways, far more damaging are the so-called negative effects. Uh, so we're talking about apathy, blunted social affect, difficulty interacting with people, um, disorders of thought and language, uh, incapacity, incapacity to deal with the business of everyday life. None of the drugs really touch those. And so um, you get a partial relief of symptoms at best. And then, of course, the other sort of nasty secret, not totally a secret, certainly not of anybody who, who hangs around this territory, is that these drugs aren't a free lunch. When you take them, you are courting um, all kinds of negative symptoms, uh, negative effects, iatrogenic illness. Um, some people develop Parkinson-like uh, symptoms. Others become incurably restless. Uh, they move about constantly, which is very, you know, distressing for them and for those around them. Um, they suffer from tardive dyskinesia, arguably they're, they're the real bugbear of the early antipsychotics. Um, uncontrollable movements of the extremities and facial muscles, quacking noises, things that um, ignorant lay people, I don't mean that in a negative kind of way, but lay people who are unfamiliar with what's going on, ironically tend to interpret as symptoms of madness. You come across somebody grimacing and shouting and coming towards you, you think, oh, there's somebody who's mentally ill. Yeah, they don't realise it's iatrogenic, do they? Right, exactly. So there's, there's that. And then... And I think this is one of the more striking kinds of things. You, you look at um, where modern treatment leaves people. Um, so most of the drug studies we have have been funded by the drug companies. They operate across national boundaries. The only entity that owns the data and controls the data is the drug company. And they cherry pick the data. We know that from lawsuits and uh, from other studies. Uh, so what purports to be evidence-based medicine is really evidence-biased medicine in a very serious way. And they've been fined billions of dollars, virtually all the major drug companies. And that's one of the reasons they're pulling back from research in this area now. Um, but it's interesting to see one study um, known as the Katie study, 
that was funded by NIMH, and it was designed to test the comparative efficacy of a first-generation antipsychotic produced in the 50s, no longer under patent, cheaper, easily prescribed, with newer variants that are variously known as second-generation antipsychotics or atypical antipsychotics, a very broad class of drugs with different modes of action. But in any event, three of those were compared to the one original one. Do they work better? And what are the, what, what are the, the effects? So I think two striking findings emerged from that research. One is the new drugs were no better than the old drugs. They had a different side effect profile, but that included gaining 30, 40, 50 pounds of weight. It included developing diabetes, uh, heart disease, a whole array of life-threatening side effects. But the other thing that I thought was really striking about that study, and it was confirmed in a bunch of other research independently, was between 67 and 82% of the patients, depending on which drug they were on, dropped out. And they dropped out for two reasons, because the damn things weren't working in their case, or because the side effects they were experiencing were intolerable. And that conforms with what we know from other research. So when people talk about um, the drugs revolution, note that between two-thirds and four-fifths of patients on these drugs don't find them tolerable or helpful. Um, That's a very damning finding, I think. Uh, Now, that's not to dismiss the cases where the drugs help, um, but what it does throw up, it seems to me, is a very large caution flag if you're a patient. Um, There isn't something better on offer, but what's on offer can be a poison chalice all too easily. Um, And so, you know, on top of that, uh, the drug companies starting in about 2010 announced they were pulling out of this business altogether. They'd made their billions upon billions of dollars. They didn't see any obvious future targets for new drugs. Uh, And there were much more profitable alternatives for research that, that they could they could put their research folks to work on. Uh, So that's rather disturbing, uh, given that we're stuck with a bunch of, once again, desperate remedies of of very doubtful efficacy. I mean, efficacy for some, but uh, for a minority. Again, something that leapt out reading the book was you expected to see a, a huge transition from the kind of, frankly, barbarous practices of, of the past to modern developments and neuroscience and genetics and a greater understanding of the brain. But actually, the kind of vestige of the harm of treatments, I think, still comes across in the way that modern psychiatry is done, you know, much less obvious and much less apparent. Yes, it's not as dramatic as as a lobotomy, obviously, especially one done with an ice pick through the eye socket. But um, yes, those do persist. And, you know, people sometimes ask me, well, could this repeat? Well, I, I don't know the answer yet, but I'm deeply suspicious when I see things like uh, deep brain stimulation, another brain operation 
when that has been put to a controlled trial test run by the manufacturers of the devices who wanted to find they were effective, those trials were aborted because the results were so terrible. And yet, there continue to be both media stories about this magnificent new treatment and publications in things like the American Journal of Psychiatry touting it as a possible remedy for the depression that afflicts, oh, God knows, 10, 15, 20% of Americans. Um, and uh, I even saw about a year ago in the Washington Post a case of one of the great plagues of uh, 21st century America, besides all the gun violence, is the opioid epidemic, fueled again by the Sacklers and their minions. Um, and this was a patient with drug addiction who was being treated with this brain surgery, seven hours of it. It was a miracle new cure for addiction. My God. Ketamine, special K, party drug. People take it at parties because it changes their mood. Yeah, it does in the short run. Uh, if they're unlucky, it makes them psychotic. Um, if they're not, you know, it wears off and then you do it again and you become habituated to it. That's the sovereign new remedy in, as claimed in some quarters for depression, even though the scientific evidence for it is thin, if not non-existent. New vogue for psychedelics, magic mushrooms, LSD. Again, a fad. It's now on offer. I mean, you can get ketamine in infusion clinics all around the country. People who have been used to treating cancer patients, now they have this whole new group from which they can make a profit. And people flock to these things, even though, once again, there's very little evidence in their favor. There's some, but, you know, if you do a 30-day study of a depression and you're mucking with somebody's mental state, um, they may well interpret that in the short run as an improvement. Come back in a year or two years and let's look at what the data show. And we have none of that data. And yet, uh, you know, here we go again, uh, another cycle of uh, a breakthrough. And I'm afraid... Um, Medical journalists have a lot to answer for in this regard. I mean, when uh, lobotomy was introduced, the Houston Post said it was as easy as removing an abscessed tooth and, and perhaps even more simple. Well, it was simple, but it wasn't, you know, it did terrible things to the person who, who got the operation. So uh, I think being vigilant about these promises of great breakthroughs is really a responsibility that lays with all of us and to expose the fact that there isn't much in the way of, of reliable information to support these often very drastic interventions. I mean, the deep brain stimulation, for example, um, the numbers of patients who suffer from serious, serious side effects from the surgery is extraordinary. And yet the enthusiasts continue to peddle this. And I'm, I'm really just shocked and appalled, I have to say. Yeah, I understand. And so um, the, the epilogue to your, your book is entitled, Does Psychiatry Have a Future? And so, you know, I wondered, what, what did your four decades of research leading up to this book tell you on that question? It's a very difficult question to answer completely. Um, we haven't really talked about it, but 
But one of the stories, and I mentioned it at the very beginning of our, our uh, interview, uh, is the collapse of the asylum. And, and what, what that was fueled by, um, it was supported by both left and right ends of the political spectrum, but for opposite reasons. Um, and uh, it led to the abandonment of any pretense of public psychiatry here and the abandonment of people with serious mental illness. Uh, there were no alternatives created, no sheltered accommodation, no attempt to meet the social needs of people who had a hard time competing in the marketplace. Um, and that it wasn't driven primarily by psychiatry. It was driven by uh, the concerns of, of politicians and uh, of budgetary concerns and the development of the vestiges of a welfare state that provided some minimal level of survival for people chucked out into the streets. Um, so psychiatry didn't create that situation, but it didn't protest for the most part as this happened. Uh, it much preferred to go after milder kinds of mental disturbance and to treat those. Um, the seriously mentally ill were a standing reproach to the profession because they didn't have good weapons to deal with the problem. Uh, and they were deeply unattractive patients. They, uh, they often weren't grateful. They, they often opposed what was happening to them. They regarded it as um, uh, destructive. Uh, but as well, they had, they had no money. So in a society dominated by the market, uh, those are people who go to the wall. So changing that situation and changing uh, an approach to mental illness that has veered from a brainless psychiatry after the war when Freudians were dominant and didn't pay any attention to anything physical to a mindless psychiatry where we pretend, oh, there's nothing here like trauma or um, other social setbacks that might have some role in somebody becoming depressed or becoming psychotic. Um, we need to, it seems to me, if psychiatry is going to move forward, it has to stop thinking that that's the answer. It may down the road have some useful impact. Uh, $20 billion spent under Tom Insel when he headed NIMH led nowhere, as he himself has confessed. Uh, so at, at best, there ought to be... There ought to be continuing basic research. This is a very complicated problem to solve. But in the meantime, we also need research into how best we can make life more tolerable for these patients and their families, how we might be able to help them avoid cycling from the gutter to the flophouse to the jail and back again. It's quite remarkable the way in which, in some ways, we've moved back to the situation that existed before the asylum was created you know, the largest places of treatment for the mentally ill in inpatient settings are the L.A. County Jail up the road from me, uh, the Cook County Jail in Chicago and Rikers Island in New York. And that's an indictment of, of the system, it seems to me. So if psychiatry is going to have a future, has to start recognizing the social and the psychological dimensions, as well as continuing to look to see what, if anything, biology contributes. And in some sense as well, as I argue in those pages, this whole separation of the biological and the social or the psychological is severely misplaced. One of the things that defines us as a species, 
is that our brains aren't in a fixed state at the time of our birth. They are remarkable. Our brains are remarkably plastic. They're enormously complicated things. We don't even understand the brain of a fruit fly, let alone the brain of a human being. We know a bit more. We understand about neurotransmitters. We understand not everything's electrical as they thought um, 75 years ago. Um, but our, our understanding is enormously primitive. Mostly what we've learned is how damn complicated this thing is in our head. Um, and so because it's plastic, because it responds to the environment we're in, what that means is over time, your brain absorbs and is transformed by your experiences. So that means this whole separation of mind and body is a false one. Uh, and academic psychiatry has to break with that because that's obviously the group that train the next generation. And the problem there is that if you're building a career in academia, particularly in the sciences and the medical sciences, it all depends on attracting grant money. If you have lots of grant money, you can get away with almost anything. I mean, people at the very top of child psychiatry and psychiatry in general took millions of dollars in drug company money and hid it. And when it was revealed, the institutions, if anything, gave them a slap on the wrist. And that was that, right? So doing social research, A, it's politically very dangerous because you might say, hey, inequality, racism, trauma, these all are vital and they have to be addressed if we're going to move forward. Politicians don't want to hear that on both sides of the aisle, I'm afraid. And there's no way to build a career that way. You can't get grant money. And if you do get it, it's very limited. Whereas your colleagues who are in genetics and neuroscience, oh, here, have, you know, millions and millions. Uh, you can publish lots of papers because you can pause that stuff in salami slices so that you get lots of publications. And you move up the career ladder. You're the people that dominate. So um, do I think things could change a bit for the better. They might. I think there are enormous obstacles to that. And that's, um, you know, a distressing end to the book. I, I don't have a happy ending to talk about. Um, I do think there are some possibilities. I think politically uh, and given academic politics and academic careers, uh, I'm, I'm rather skeptical. Though I do know younger psychiatrists, sometimes I, I, I do grand rounds with psychiatrists in training, and at least they start out in many cases with the right values. They know what, you know, if they encounter the problems, they're aware that um, there isn't a pill for every ill, that they're not going to be able to solve things simply with drugs. Um, I suspect they get worn down when they get out in practice. And again, if they're going to make a living, they have to prescribe. It, that's the only thing that generates income for them. Uh, so they're, they're also rather trapped. Even if they think underneath they know better, it's very, very hard for them to act on those beliefs. So um, we face a very difficult future. Uh, and, you know, there's been more than 200 years um, with some halting progress, 
and and lots of blind alleys and lots of dreadful uh, mistakes. And I'm not sure we've finished with those uh, blind alleys and, and mistakes. It sounds to me like psychiatry should maybe move away from a purely medical view of this and towards a sociological view of it. Well, I think there's room for both. Um, I mean, I, I really would be very surprised for the most extreme kinds of mental illness, the sorts of things that led people to, to be institutionalized. I'd be surprised if there weren't some biological component to some of that. I'd also be even more surprised if that were the whole story. So, um, you know, it, I hate to seem like um, the proverbial liberal who wants a middle course here, uh, but it does seem to me uh, that you don't want to abandon that kind of research entirely. But what you do want to say is that, you know, 40 years and no therapeutic payoff, no greater understanding of the origins of each of these conditions, whatever they are. Uh, maybe it's time to adopt a more eclectic, broad-based approach to trying to do things. And in the meantime, given that you have no cures to offer, uh, you ought to be working out what is the best thing you can do to ameliorate the, the lives of the sufferers and of their families, because with the institutionalization, a huge burden fell back on families. Organizations like NAMI, which were not organizations of patients, they were organizations of patients' families, kind of embraced the biological. If, if you've been told um, you were frozen parents who hated your offspring and, and had caused them to become mad, and then somebody else came along and said, that's not your fault at all. It's the chemical soup in the brain, and here we have a pill that will affect the serotonin levels, and then they'll be fine. Which would you embrace? Of course, you'd embrace the one that said, it was nothing to do with you. It's not your fault. Um, and here's something med modern medical science has done that, that can alleviate the situation. Um, so it explains, in my view, why when budget cuts happen, when states have to deal with a fiscal crisis, which they do periodically, uh, treatment for the mentally ill, resources for the mentally ill, are often on the chopping block. They're among the first things to go. Um, years ago in 1950, about 30% of New York State's budget went on mental hospitals. I guarantee you that 30% of New York State's current budget doesn't go on mental illness. Uh, so, you know, then the question is, what substitutes for it? And, and really, it's... Um, Malign neglect. I was going to say benign neglect, but there's nothing benign about it. It's it's malign. It's malicious. It does terrible things to people's lives, uh, and yet it's enormously difficult to see how we're going to move forward successfully from the sort of neoliberal environment we exist in, where if you're incapable of competing in the marketplace, you're so much um, garbage, so much social rubbish. You 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 almost don't exist. Thank you, Andrew. And was there anything else that you felt it important to share with the listeners? I guess I, I did talk a bit about the disproportionate treatment of women. Um, that's also true along racial lines as well. Um, and, and that's something we haven't mentioned. And you can see it across time. So 
in the South, when mental hospitals were built pre-Civil War, blacks were kept out. There was no reason to waste money on slaves. When the hospital system expanded in the late 19th century, either, two, either one of two things happened. Uh, black patients were segregated in separate wards for the colored, or separate asylums were built for the colored insane. And separate but equal, of course, means nothing of the sort. It's uh, uh, separate, all right, but it's deeply unequal. So if mental hospitals for white patients were often hell holes, snake pits, for black patients, they were even worse. Um, and one can trace this all the way down to the present. Uh, so we've talked about the ejection of patients into a community with no real effort to supply the necessary social supports. And the cycling of patients into jails, that again disproportionately affects blacks and especially black males who are seen as distinctly threatening. And so in, in the LA County Jail, for example, um, in the county, about 11% of the patient of the population is, is African-American. In the prisons, it's about 30%. In those with diagnosed with serious mental health problems, it's about 45%. So you can see that historical trajectory that we've talked about being replicated again in the present. Um, and uh, so I guess that's that's an issue we we haven't touched on that, that bears mentioning. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. I, you know, I have to say, I'm sorry, we could only just scratch the surface of the book. And, you know, for people listening, I, I really urge you to go and read it. it. It is fascinating. It's horrifying in parts. It's forensic. It talks really deeply actually about the characters of the story. So rather than just an overview, it actually talks about the key opinion leaders who really set the scene and kind of set the stage for the changes to come. Well, th thank you. Yes. I mean, this is very much a book I th I'd like to think for everyone, for people working in the professions, but also because we all experience mental illness, either ourselves in a number of cases or among our family members or among those dear and close to us. And none of us escape the social consequences of, of the existence of this kind of suffering. So, uh, you know, it's written very much in a way to keep the reader uh, drawn into these things and understanding them as much as I'm capable of doing in, in as thorough a fashion as I can in the space I have. So I appreciate all the kind words and I, I hope indeed people do read the book. Well, I just want to thank Andrew for taking the time to talk with me for the podcast. As a reminder, his latest book, published in 2022 by Harvard Press, is entitled Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness. And it is vital reading for anyone who wants a greater understanding of the progress made or not made in responding to human distress. So thank you, as always, for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.